Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today from my office in central Hong Kong as we study the Come Follow Me curriculum for March 23rd through the 29th. And today we will be discussing the books of Enos, Jerem, Omni, and Words of Mormon. Well, uh, again, I'm uh, back in Hong Kong. I arrived here a little less than a week ago, and now everyone else in the world is kind of experiencing what we in Hong Kong and Asia have been experiencing for a little bit, and that's uh, being shut in and not being able to go to church as normal and uh, major disruptions uh, to your life. Uh, you know, this is obviously very unique times that we're living in, and uh you know, encourage everyone to remain faithful. Certainly, uh, President Nelson was prophetic in every way as he began implementing this uh, home-centered church focus. Uh, we began reaping the blessings of those in Hong Kong as we had uh, numerous uh, church meetings canceled due to protests starting last year. And now with uh, coronavirus, obviously, uh, it's uh, the blessing this home-centered focus is blessing the uh, the entire world. So certainly uh, we thank Thee, O God, for a prophet to, to guide us in these uh, difficult and challenging times. Well, with today's lesson, uh, we will be turning from Nephi and his family. Uh, we'll be looking at their posterity, but we're going to go through several hundred years of history in just a few pages here. Um, and these small books are very, very interesting. It's important to remember that these are part of the small plates of Nephi. Uh, if you remember, Nephi uh, began recording these in addition to his large plates that he was keeping a record on. And so, uh, as, as far as we know, for hundreds of years, prophets were keeping records in both accounts. The small plates were focused on the more spiritual things, whereas the large plates uh, had more of a, of a history. And as Mormon was abridging these into uh, his record, the one that was actually translated, and remember, we don't have, we're not, well, the Book of Mormon that we have is not the actual large plates. It's Mormon's abridgment of the large plates. Um, and so there were these two records that were kept, and, Br and Mormon was abridging the large plates. But these small plates, we'll see in the words of, in the words of Mormon, he, uh, he kind of found them at the end and when it was just about to be finished, he kind of threw them in uh, for purposes that weren't completely clear. We're just, we'll discuss that as we discuss the Words of Mormon, but it's important to, uh, I think, keep that in mind as we go through these few chapters and as we cover several hundred years. We don't have the large plates that these guys were, were keeping a record of, um, but so Enos, Jeremomni, uh, all of these individuals that kept these records, uh, all they did was really just take a... a they, they all followed a very similar pattern. They just recorded a few. Uh, they tried to keep it spiritual thoughts. In some cases, it were very short, just short enough to say, you know what, I'm not a spiritual person. I made a lot of mistakes. Next. Um, but, you know, an interesting pattern, and certainly we should be grateful uh, for the effort that they, uh, that they put in to there. Uh, and, you know, certainly there's probably gaps in the record that we don't have. Uh, in fact, I think probably starting with Enos, uh, we see one of these gaps as well. And so with that, let's let's turn to Enos as our uh, first book that we'll be uh, studying today. We don't really know that much about Enos. Uh, really, the only thing that we know about Enos is that he had a father and he was well-educated and he prayed and kept that record. Uh, and then he passed it on to his son, uh, Jerem. Um, now, some people might say that... Uh, well, Enos was the son of Jacob, uh, Nephi's younger brother. But I don't think that's actually true because if you look at uh, Enos ends his record in uh, 179 years after uh, they left Jerusalem, um, which would mean 
you know, if Jacob, who was born in the wilderness about 590 BC, will say about, let's say at most eight years after they left Jerusalem, since he was born in the wilderness, you know, if he had a son, let's say he was really old when he had uh, a son, and, and we do know he had a son named Enos that he handed the plates to, but let's say it's the, if it is the same Enos, that means, you know, Enos was 50 when his dad was born, meaning that's about 60 years since the time they left Jerusalem. And 179 years after that would mean Enos was 119 when he was recording those things. So I don't think that's probably uh, especially realistic. What is probably the best explanation is uh, Jacob had a son named Enos. He handed the plates to him. And then that son either had a son that he also named Enos or perhaps a grandson that he named Enos. Uh, we don't know exactly, but eventually it went from Jacob's son, uh, from Jacob to his son Enos. And then there's a gap that we don't know. And then eventually it arrived in the, in the hands of someone else named Enos. Because all Jacob, or sorry, all Enos tells us is that uh, knowing that he, all he tells us about his father is that his father was a just man. Uh, unlike a lot of the other record keepers, he doesn't tell us the name of his father. He just says his father was a just man. His father could have been named Jacob or Enos Sr. or Bob for all we know. Um, but, it, you know, again, if you do the math, it most likely was not uh, Jacob, son of Lehi, that was his father. But uh, we have this Enos character here. Uh, he had a father who was a just man and taught him in, the, in, in language. Uh, and more importantly, uh, the, the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so his father did a good job of teaching him uh, about the plan of salvation and to keep the commandments. And uh, so let's, uh, and so Enos wants to tell us a story. And remember, Enos is not keeping a long record. He just wants to tell us, you know, as, as I see this, it seems like Enos at the, at the end of his life is looking back, you know, with these small plates in hand. For whatever reason, he hasn't been super diligent in keeping a long detailed record. Uh, certainly not like Nephi was, uh, not to the extent that uh, Jacob was either. So he's looking back, he's thinking, what's something that I can tell people about? And I love the story that he chooses. And here's the story that he chooses. Let's read verse 2 uh, to get started. And I will tell you of the wrestle which I had before God, before I received a remission of my sins. So let's stop there, because Enos doesn't tell us what he's wrestling before God about. And that's, I think, intentional. And the reason is because we can relate. Whatever Enos's big issue was, whatever this concern that Enos had that caused him to wrestle before God, that was unique to Enos. That was his wrestling matter. And there could have been many of them. He doesn't tell us. But the result of his wrestling was that he received a remission of his sins. Uh, and I think that's very, very interesting. And it presents a beautiful lesson and a beautiful pattern for us as we consider our own lives and the, own, and the very personal things that we wrestle with. I don't know what it is that you're wrestling with. Maybe it's you have a hard time uh, believing uh, everything that the prophet says or you have a hard time with uh, you know, having these men in Salt Lake uh, dictate things for you. Maybe it's something with church history that you wrestle with. Maybe there's a commandment. Maybe it's tithing. Maybe it's the word of wisdom. Uh, maybe it's something else that you wrestle with. Maybe it's a sin that you have that you wrestle with. Maybe it's uh, pornography or, or word of wisdom. Uh, you know, it could be anything. Maybe you have a child who's not living their lives uh, as you wish that they were. Or another, uh, someone that you love deeply uh, has decided to to leave the church or is challenging you in some other way. Whatever the issue that you're wrestling with, Enos's story has value to you because he doesn't tell us what his issue was. He only tells us that he had some issue and he wrestled before God for that issue. And as a result of his wrestling, he received a remission of his sins. And that was the beautiful answer that he needed. And I think one of the lessons from the book of Enos is no matter what the issue is, 
that we are wrestling with. As we work to resolve that issue, as we wrestle before God with that issue, the conclusion will be a remission of sins. And we'll talk about that uh, as we go through this process. That the answer to all of our questions, no matter what they are, no matter if it's one of those that I just listed out as a possibility or whatever it is, your personal matter that you're wrestling before God, the answer, the solution that you should be seeking for is a remission of your sins, is through the atonement of Jesus Christ being receiving forgiveness, receiving that witness from the Holy Ghost that your sins have been forgiven you. And interestingly, that doesn't mean that whatever the question is will go away or will be answered or will be resolved in the way that you want it to. It might not. There's a good chance it won't, especially if it involves the agency of another person. But once you receive a remission of your sins, that's okay. Because it's not about them. It's personal to you. So about this concept with wrestling before God, interesting to note, as I've mentioned in other lessons, the word Israel, and remember that Israel is a name that was given to Jacob of old in the Old Testament, as he wrestled with an angel all night long, and once he prevailed against the angel, he received a new name, and his name was Israel. And the word Israel means to struggle with God. And as we were discussing the Isaiah chapters, and as we were discussing Israel and its meaning, I clarified, or I, I gave my opinion how I think God's people, God does not want a people that are a bunch of robots that just does whatever he says. He wants people that struggle with him. He wants kids that, that wrestle with him, that, that challenge him in good and constructive ways. He doesn't want a bunch of minions that just does whatever he says because that's not his purpose. His purpose is not to create robots. His purpose is to create people, men and women, that are capable of, as uh, I think it was President Elder Cook said, carrying on the family business, moving forward, doing what he does. And what he does is difficult and complex, unbelievably so. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that we are presented with difficult and complex challenges, that if we are going to become like our heavenly parents, we are going to have to learn to work through, not necessarily resolve, but to work through. Another idea is the idea of uh, jihad, a, a Muslim term, which often is, according to my understanding, obviously I'm not a Muslim, so I can't speak uh, from a lifetime of experience and the same feelings and emotions that a Muslim would have. But from my understanding, uh, jihad has two interpretations. One is to fight against uh, the non-Muslim world. But the more common one uh, is jihad is understood to be a, a, an, an internal, an inner struggle uh, with sin, a fighting within yourself, the good and the bad within yourself fighting against each other and as you do so, you hope that the result of that jihad is that you will come out the conqueror of sin. In the same way that Jacob wrestled with the angel and prevailed over him. This idea that we struggle within ourselves, we struggle with God as we try to come to an understanding and become the best that we can become and receive the growth that we need uh, are all beautiful concepts. And I find them all wrapped into this idea of verse 2. We all have issues that we struggle with. And the solution to them is a remission of sins. Now, before we leave this idea, uh, as I was preparing, my mind was uh, drawn to uh, a beautiful book written by uh, Terrell and uh, Fiona Givens called The Crucible of Doubt. Uh, I'm sure many people have read it, but there's some beautiful ideas that I think get around, uh, th th that discuss this issue. And, and their book is about how to work your way through uh, questions about whether it be uh, the gospel or spirituality or the church in general that you might have. And one of the points that they emphasize is that we need to understand that life is messy and that the gospel sometimes, and that because the gospel uh, applies to life, 
it also gets messy, right? We're, we're not monks that go up in the mountains and put away all of the challenges and the messiness of life. That's not what we believe in. We believe that we are called to work through the challenges of a messy world. And so the gospel solutions to this messy world are often going to be messy. And so if we're expecting everything to work out perfectly uh, and, you know, our testimony is never going to be challenged and we're never going to have these, you know, big, difficult challenges that really cause us to, to think about uh, our paradigms and our frameworks, then we're probably not thinking hard enough. Um, hopefully, if anything, uh, these lessons are a, a challenge for everyone. I try to present them in a way to, to really think about what the gospel means to you, to really think about what it is that we believe and really think about how that applies to our lives and, and why we apply it to our lives, what it is that we're doing. And so uh, a few, comment, a few uh, quotes um, from the chapter two in this book that I, that I want to share with you uh, that I think have to do, that, that get at this idea of uh, Enos wrestling with an issue and how it's okay for us to wrestle and we all should be wrestling. On page 30 of their book, they said, Life's most wrenching choices are not between right and wrong, but between competing demands on our time, our resources, our love, and loyalty. And I love that quote because I think it's so true. You know, I've growing up in the church, I've been a member of the church. I was, I was baptized 32 years ago. Um, you know, obviously I'm not perfect and there are commandments that I struggle with. But generally speaking, keeping the commandments is not a problem for me. You might be different, but I'm just speaking for myself. You know, if I go to a, a work function and wine is served, it really has zero appeal to me. Uh, everyone knows I don't drink it anyway, so I mean, even if I were to, people would <laughs> probably stop me. Um, but keeping the commandments for me, you, you, you just say good and wrong, right and wrong, that's not my challenge. For me, my challenge has to do with exactly as they said competing demand between my time, resources, love, and loyalty. You know, what do you do if you have a priesthood meeting? but your wife or your child requires your attention. What do you do in that instance? What do you do if uh, you have a, you know, a, a good a question about something in the church that doesn't make sense to you and everything that you know in the world says one thing, whereas the church says another, another thing, how do you compete? How do you what about those competing loyalties? Those are the real challenges as far as I'm concerned. At least for me, that's the, certainly the way it is. And so the things that I wrestle with are not, <laughs> do I drink that wine as I'm, uh, that I'm presented with at a work function? For me, the things that I wrestle with are, I have a meeting that I'm supposed to go to for church, and I have a child who really, really needs me. What do I do in that instance? I haven't been to the temple this month. In the instance in which the temples are open, obviously. I haven't been to the temple this month. And it's Saturday, but my daughter has a performance. And that's the only time, that's the time I was going to go to the temple, but my daughter needs me to see this. I don't want to miss this for her. You know, so many different conflicts for our time, for our resources, and for our attention. And the, and the things that I wrestle with is, how do I make those decisions? What do I put as my priorities? Uh, those are difficult, difficult questions. Uh, another quote from here, verse 33, or sorry, page 33. If spiritual maturity and not a rote performance is the goal, then life is not a multiple choice test. There can't be ready answers to the most soul-stretching dilemmas like Eve's courageous choice in the garden, the test has to probe deeper than true, false, or right, wrong. Self-revelation and self-formation take place only in the presence of the seemingly insoluble, the wrenchingly vexing, the genuine question. So I think that another quote that gets at the same idea is that the most difficult questions are not black and white. They're not completely clear, and I think that is intentionally so. 
And so the things that we wrestle with are going to be complex issues and they're going to be personal issues. And so from that, I take you know, several takeaways from that. First of all, if you're aware of something that someone else is wrestling with and the answer seems clear to you, be slow in judging because you don't know all of the different factors that go into the complexity of that person's judgment. Sure, you might come out in a different way than they would, but the factors in your life are going to be are very different than theirs. And so be slow to judge other people as they struggle with their own multiple, non-multiple choice questions. The real questions are essay questions, you could say. They're not multiple choice questions. So as other people struggle with their own essay questions, be slow in judging. And then the second takeaway is be kind to yourself. Recognize that the complexities that we deal with in this world as we try to apply the beautiful message of the gospel to the messy complexities of life, be kind to yourself, be generous with yourself. And if your conclusion is different than someone else's, that might not be a bad thing because your reality is different than someone else's. The factors that go into your decision-making process are going to be different than someone else's. You don't know how their wife views something, how their child views something, what pressure they're receiving from their parents or from their work, what financial, financial stresses are weighing down on them. And it's easy for us from a distance to say, oh, just exercise faith. But I think a lot of times that's not a real answer. So this is a very long way of uh, introducing verse 2 and why I love Enos's story so much. Because we don't know what it is that caused him to wrestle before God, but I'm sure it was difficult for him. It must have been gut-wrenching for him. And so because of that, uh, he had this, and, and because of that, he had this amazing experience and Thank goodness he was willing to share that with us. Verses 3 and 4 uh, in Enos. Behold, I went to hunt beasts in the forest, and the words which I had often heard my father speak concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints sunk deep into my heart, and my soul hungered, and I kneeled down before my Maker, and I cried unto him in mighty prayer and supplication for mine own soul. And all the day long did I cry unto him. Yea, and when the night came, I did still raise my voice high, that it reached the heavens. So when he had this difficult issue, he was out about his life one day. Apparently today it was hunting day. And so he went out into a quiet place where he was hunting and whatever this gut-wrenching issue that caused him to wrestle before God was weighing on him deeply. And as he was thinking about his challenge, he was recalling the things his father taught him about uh, concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints, about happiness in this life and happiness in the life to come. What a wonderful lesson this is for parents. You never know when it is that something you teach your children is going to, that they're going to need. So I think it's very important that as parents, we put as much in our child's spiritual reservoir, put as many things on the shelf, whatever uh, analogy you want to use, uh, whatever metaphor you like, so that when it's needed, they're able to take it down and they're able to use it. And that's what Enos's father had done. He had taught him about the plan of salvation, about eternal life and the joy of the saints. Maybe Enos was struggling with his own testimony. That's simple. Maybe something his father taught him wasn't making sense. But whatever it was he was wrestling with, he went out. These things his father was teaching him began to penetrate his soul and have great meaning to him. And in verse 4, his soul hungered. I love that expression. It's something we can all relate to. We all know what it feels like to be hungry. We all know what it... And we all know that when you're hungry, that's the only thing that really matters. When you're really hungry, is the only thing that matters is getting getting that. I heard a story once, who knows if it's true, that uh, someone came up to Confucius and said, I, I want you to teach me wisdom, Confucius. And he said, all right, come down by the river and I'll teach you wisdom. And he takes him down by the river and he takes the young man and he puts him under the water, puts his head under the water. 
And the young man is thinking, this is a crazy lesson. Confucius is going to drown me. And he kept him under there. And he was about to give up. And then Confucius pulls him out of the water. And as he's gasping for air, he's, Confucius told to him, when you want wisdom as much as you wanted to breathe, then you can come back to me. No idea if that's true, but I think it illustrates a, 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 the wonderful point, the same point that, that Enos is teaching here. His soul hungered, and this was what he wanted more than anything. This soul-vexing issue that caused him to wrestle before God, he needed an answer, just as his body needed food. And so because of that, he cried unto God in mighty prayer and supplication for his own soul. For his own soul. That was his initial reaction was, Lord, save me. Save me from this issue. Because it's tearing me apart and I don't know what to do. And at this point, his prayer was sincere. Because he hungered. Because he needed that answer in order to move forward. Verses 5 and 6. And there came a voice unto me saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. And I, Enos, knew that God could not lie, wherefore my guilt was swept away. So as a result of him praying for himself as he sought the answer that he needed... Enos received a remission of his sins. Verse 5, the, there came a voice saying, thy, uh, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. First of all, he was able to recognize the voice of the Lord. And then in verse 6, we see he believed the voice of the Lord. And at first, this seems like a kind of a strange answer to, again, we don't know what, is, what it was, the question that was causing him this, uh, this discomfort. But the answer, and again, I think the reason we don't know it is so that we can personally apply it to ourselves. The answer was, and always will be for us, remission of sins through Jesus Christ. Whatever the issue that you're dealing with is, whatever it is that causes your soul to hunger, whatever it is that causes you to have to wrestle with or wrestle before God to whatever it is you're struggling with. The answer is obtain a remission of your sins. Recognize that we are fallen. Recognize that we need help, that we need to be saved. Humbly, humbly recognize the fact that we are not perfect and that we make mistakes and that the only way to get through those mistakes is through the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And once we recognize that, once we put all of our issues, whatever they are, in perspective, if we can obtain that remission of sins, if we can receive that confirmation by the Holy Ghost that our lives are in order and that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, and we have entered into covenants with Christ and we are holding fast to those covenants and therefore we qualify for the remission of sins. Once we can do that, whatever other issues that we're struggling with tend to fade away. Not that they get resolved. Those complexities are still going to be there. But because of our faith in Christ, we're able to push through those. Maybe with difficult questions, whether it be gospel-related, life-related, what have you, we're able to say, you know what, I'm going to put those on the side, and because of my faith in Jesus Christ and the certainty that I have, that I have been saved by Him, that I have received a remission of my sins from Him, I'm able to take those questions, take those concerns, take those things I don't know about, and put them on a shelf for now, recognizing and having faith that one day I'll learn the answer to them. But in the meantime, I'm not going to let it destroy everything else that I have, especially that all-important relationship with my Savior. Or if your challenge is a relationship with a family member, once we have that faith to receive a remission of our sins, we're able to put that family member and our relationship with him or her into perspective as well.
and we're able to be more forgiving. We're able to be more loving because we have that assurance that God is forgiving of us and that God is loving of us and that because we've received remission of our sins, we are better positioned to fairly and charitably deal with other people. Verse 8, And he said unto me, Because of thy faith in Christ, whom thou hast never before heard nor seen, and many years pass away before he shall manifest himself in the flesh, wherefore go to, thy faith hath made thee whole. And so Enos 7, we skipped over, Lord, how is it done? And the answer is, how is it done? Because of your faith in Jesus Christ. How is it that I came to you with this difficult challenge, this issue that I'm wrestling before you with, and that I prayed day and night about? And how is it that the answer is, I've received remission of sins? The answer is, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, whom you've never seen. And as we just discussed, because you have faith in Christ, because you understand his plan of salvation, because you know him well enough that you can be and you are forgiven of your sins, you are then in a position to go and confront whatever the demons, whatever the issues, whatever the relationships, whatever the questions it is you're dealing with, you're now in a position to go and deal properly with them. So, brothers and sisters, whatever your challenge is, Step one, get on your knees, get yourself right before God, confirm a remission of your own sins, and then go confront your challenges. And your perspective, after you've confirmed that remission of your own sins, after you've confirmed your own standing before God, your perspective will be probably very different than it was before you engaged in step one. But that's what Enos is telling us here, that we all need to do with those issues that cause us to wrestle before God. Uh, verse 9. Now it came to pass that when I had heard these words, I began to feel a desire for the welfare of my brethren, the Nephites. Wherefore, I did pour out my whole soul unto God for them. And so we see here, just as we spoke about, once you receive a remission of your own sins, and once you're confirmed that your position before God is in good standing, your next natural thought is to those that you love. And you'll begin to pour out your heart, pour out your soul on their behalf. And that's exactly what Enos does. And then verse 11. And after I, Enos, had heard these words, my faith began to be unshaken in the Lord, and I prayed unto him with many long strugglings for my brethren, the Lamanites. So, after he has a desire to pray on behalf of those he's loved, he loves because he obtained a remission of his own sins. His next desire is to pray on behalf of those he doesn't love, those who he has a very hard time loving. And we see his soul here is beginning to enlarge. And why does it enlarge? Because he humbly came before the Lord, wrestled before him with his issues, and received was worthy enough and righteous enough to receive a remission of his sins. And with that confirmation, with that understanding of his relationship between him and God, he was well positioned to go and, and, and to consider the needs of other people, starting with those that he loved and as his soul enlarged, including those that he does not love. And we begin to see, we begin to understand how is it that Whatever issues, whatever the messiness of life has presented to us, and certainly, God, the Nephites and Lamanites, that's a messy situation. They're your brethren, and they want to kill you. <laughs> that's, that's pretty messy. That's pretty difficult. But as he understood the plan of salvation, as he received his own remission of sins, and as he qualified for the blessings of the plan of salvation, those issues with his brethren, the Lamanites, slowly melted away. Melted away under the heat of love. Because his soul enlarged and he increased in love and increased in charity for them. And he began to desire uh, for their own benefit. Uh, verse 12. And it came to pass that after I had prayed and labored with all diligence, the Lord said unto me, I will grant unto thee according to thy desires because of thy faith. 
So it, it's interesting here that um, sometimes I think we falsely make the draw the conclusion that you know Enos went out and prayed, uh, the Lord blessed him, his soul enlarged, he prayed for the Lamanites, and then the Lord said, and then he told the Lord, okay, Lord, here's what my demands are. I want if the Nephites reject the gospel and the Laman, or if the Nephites are destroyed and the Lamanites reject the gospel, I demand that this book be preserved. I don't think that's the way that it worked because we'll see that doesn't make sense for one. And two, that's actually contrary to what we've just been talking about. Because what happened is not that Enos's will, Enos was able to impose his will on God, but as Enos prayed, and this is what prayer is supposed to do, his own will, his own pride, his own ego, his own demands melted away. And what was left was God's will, God's demands, God's expectations. And so it's not that Enos told God what he wanted, but Enos began to understand what God wanted. And so that's why Enos's will, God was willing to do Enos's will, because Enos's will was God's will. Because the two wills had come together as one. And so that process, as we've talked about, that process of atonement that prayer is, in which we give up our will, and our will becomes God's will, that's what's supposed to happen in prayer. We're supposed to humbly come before God, not to tell God what we want as if he's Santa Claus and we're sitting on his lap and we say, here's my demands, here's my wish list. We humbly come before God when our soul is truly hungry, when we say, Lord, I have this issue, I don't know how to deal with it. Teach me. Help me understand your will for this issue. Help me to be better. Help me to be more like you. And as we humbly do that and our will melts away, God's will is revealed to us. And then our will, or then God's will becomes our will. And that's how prayer is supposed to work. It's the process through which, if you look up prayer in the Bible dictionary, it explains this beautifully. I've shared this in my videos before. Prayer is the process through which the will of the child and the will of the father are brought together as one. And that's what happened uh, to Enos here. Uh, verse 17. Now I, Enos, knew it would be according to the covenant which he had made, wherefore my soul did rest. So I love the progression here. Enos starts off wrestling before God with his difficult issues. And then as he humbly loses his will, and as his soul is enlarged, and as he receives confirmation that his sins are forgiven him, and as his faith in Jesus Christ increases, he's no longer wrestling with these complex issues. Again, not because the issues went away, but because he increased in faith in Jesus Christ. And so he went from wrestling with God to resting in God. And that is what prayer is for. As we draw close unto the Lord, that is what will happen to us. Our defenses will go down, our will will go down, and it will be given up and become, and we will take upon ourselves the will of the Father, the will of our Savior, and we will rest, our soul will rest, as Enos talks about in verse 17. And so, Enos then moves on from that experience. Verse 17 kind of uh, ends that experience. And he goes on to explain the difficulties of Nephite life. And there's a lot of difficulties. And I think he probably includes them there to say, look, just because I had this wonderful experience doesn't mean the rest of my life went exactly as planned. There was a lot of challenges. Uh, and I think verses 22 and 23, uh, given the challenges that we're all going through, uh, is worth reading. Verse 22 and 23. And there were exceedingly many prophets among us, and the people were a stiff-necked people, hard to understand. And there was nothing save it was exceeding harshness, preaching and prophesying of wars and contentions and destructions, and continually reminding them of death and the duration of eternity, and the judgments and the power of God and all these things, stirring them up continually to keep them in the fear of the Lord. 
I say there was nothing short of these things, an exceedingly great plainness of speech would keep them from going down speedily to destruction, and after this manner do I write concerning these things. As I was preparing this lesson, these, these verses kind of struck out to me. Are we a people that are hard to understand? And it doesn't mean, and I don't think that means that, you know, it's difficult to understand what we're talking about. I think that means our, our, our minds and our hearts are hard. And because of that, we don't understand what it is the prophets and God's messengers and the Holy Ghost is teaching us. And then in verse 23, uh, the people had to be continually reminded of death, which is an interesting statement. They had to be continually reminded of death. Otherwise, they would get so caught up in the nitty-gritty of life that they would forget the eternity. They would lose their proper perspective. And maybe in the struggles that we're going through right now as we all confront coronavirus, this deadly disease, maybe it's good for us to be reminded of death, reminded of our own mortality, reminded that this life is just a temporary stop on our eternal journeys. Now, that doesn't say that we hope, you know, we don't care about the results and we don't try to save as many lives as possible. Of course we do that. But it's also good to remember that this life is temporary. And, you know, hopefully you don't die of coronavirus, but eventually you're all, we're all going to die of something. Because that's part of the plan. We have to. We're not going to be here forever, nor should we want to be. We have to be continually reminded that we are here temporarily. We have an eternity ahead of us. And if we're smart, we're going to use our time focusing on that eternity, preparing for that eternity so that we are ready to face and confront that eternity rather than just putting all of our efforts and attention on the here and now. Uh, and then it ends, uh, Enos's lesson uh, ends with uh, verse 27 in which he says, And I soon go into the place of my rest, which is with my Redeemer. For I know that in him I shall rest, and I rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality and shall stand before him. Then shall I see his face with pleasure, and he will say unto me, Come unto me, ye blessed, there is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my Father. Amen. What a wonderful testimony to uh, end this beautiful lesson that Enos uh, provided for us his testimony of Jesus Christ his testimony that he was going to his place of rest through that process of prayer and receiving confirmation of remission of his sins he had learned to find rest in God he didn't go through life he certainly had challenges but he was able to put his challenges in proper perspective in the perspective of the atonement of Jesus Christ and by so doing, he was able to obtain rest, both in this life and he had the promise of rest in the world to come. So Enos's record is short. I, man, I wish we had more. Enos seems like such a, such a great guy. But the lesson that he left behind for us is truly powerful, uh, absolutely wonderful. Whatever issue it is that we're wrestling with, let's seek for remission of sins first, and then we will be ready to uh, seek God's will, to know God's will as we confront uh, the issues that we, that we wrestle with. Uh, turn to the book of Jerem now. Uh, Jerem was the son uh, of Enos and the plates were handed to him. Uh, and uh, let's turn to verse 4 as he talks about his life and the struggles that he went through. And there are many among us who have many revelations for they are not all stiff-necked, and as many as are not stiff-necked and have faith, have communion, communion with the Holy Spirit, which maketh manifest unto the children of men according to their faith. So as I read this, it struck out to me. I was like, I thought, you know, do I have revelations in my life? Because according to Jerem, if we have faith and are not stiff-necked, we're going to have communion with the Holy Spirit and we're going to have revelations in our life. In other words, if I don't have revelations in my life, if I don't have communion with the Holy Spirit, it's probably because I'm either stiff-necked or I don't have faith. 
And so I need to think about my own life. If I'm not having the spiritual uh, revelations that I expect to. Am I being stiff-necked? Am I being stubborn? Am I being prideful? And am I unwilling to listen to God? Am I unwilling to change my own thought processes? Am I exercising sufficient faith in my actions? And if I'm not receiving revelation, then maybe those are some good places to start. Uh, verse 11 in Jerem. Wherefore the prophets and the priests and the teachers did labor diligently, exhorting with all long suffering the people to diligence, teaching the law of Moses and the intent to which it was given, persuading them to look forward unto the Messiah and believe in him to come as though he already was. And after this manner did they teach him. And what struck out to me here uh, was this idea that they, they taught the law of Moses, but not only did they teach these commandments, they also taught the intent for which they are given. And I love the things that President Nelson is doing with the church. Uh, he's simplifying it. I see him as looking at whether it's our, our meetings, whether it's even uh, the organization, whether it's even the endowment ceremony. He's saying, what is the fat that we can cut? How do we simplify this life so our members not focus on these rituals, but they can focus on the intent for which we have these things? The intent for which we have church meetings, the intent for which we have a church organization, the intent for which we go to the temple in the first place. That should be our focus. Not just the rituals, not just the different programs or expectations that uh, the church has uh, to bless us with, but rather the intention behind the programs or the expectations. What is that intention? That is what is most important. And so hopefully uh, as we see President Nelson continue to, to trim the fat, uh, we'll be able to focus more on the intention, more on what the purpose is behind the things that we do. And with that, we turn to uh, Omni. Uh, Omni is an interesting book. It starts off uh, in the hands of Omni, and then it goes, to his, uh, then it goes from Omni to uh, Amaron, and then to Chemish, and then to Abinadom, and then to uh, Malachi. And Malachi receives these things, and he apparently doesn't have any kids that he's wanting to pass them to. And he sees King Benjamin is a good man, and so he passes it to King Benjamin. And then in Omni, he goes on to recount, uh, uh, Malachi goes on to recount uh, the story of King Messiah, uh, King Mosiah being warned of the Lord uh, to flee from the land of uh, Nephi, and as a result, he discovers the people of uh, Zarahemla, uh, who were descended from Mulek, who was one of uh, King Zedekiah's uh, sons, and they had fled at about the time that Lehi and his family had fled. They eventually wound up there too. The Nephites had never discovered them until uh, about 400 years later, in which um, King, uh, in, in which Messiah discovers them, and then Messiah uh, becomes king over this group of people, and he has a son named King Benjamin. Uh, very interesting story, but we'll spend uh, a lot of time going uh, through this in the book of Mosiah. That's kind of a big part of that story here. So uh, Omni uh, just gives us kind of a, a, a precursor uh, as to what is to come. Um, but he ends his record. He, he doesn't really go into a lot of spiritual detail, uh, maybe he didn't get the memo that the small plates were supposed to be for spiritual things because he leaves a lot of, uh, uh, you know, historical uh, account and not much spiritual. But he does leave us verse 26, which is a true gem, an um, omni verse 26, in which he says, And now, my beloved brethren, I would that ye should come unto Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel, and partake of his salvation and the power of his redemption. Yea, come unto him and offer your whole souls as an offering unto him, and continue in fasting and praying and endure to the end, and as the Lord liveth, ye will be saved. Oh, so much goodness in that little verse. It, it just kind of comes out of nowhere because Omni doesn't seem like an especially spiritual person because uh, he's handing these things off to King Benjamin, who he says seems like a good guy, so I'll give it to him. 
And then out of nowhere, he just overwhelms us with this beautiful verse 26, this beautiful testimony. And what I especially love in it that's meaningful to me is the phrase in which he says, offer your whole souls as an offering unto him. This idea that we offer our whole souls to God. And that's what we talked about when, when we spoke a few minutes ago about prayer and how prayer is supposed to work and how we're supposed to give up our will, give up our desires in order to seek to understand God's will and God's desires. We give up our souls, our wills, and so that, our, so that God's will becomes, uh, be, becomes our will. And that's what it means to uh, offer our souls unto him, to give up uh, the stubborn issues that are causing us to lose focus. Uh, you know, going back to Enos's story, those issues that we're wrestling with, they seem very important to us. But my guess is most of those issues, as we look back from a standpoint of eternity, our, 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 our thought process, our, our thinking uh, on most of them will be, oh, yeah, that was a challenge, but at the end it really didn't matter. And that's because we'll be looking back from a, a view of eternity, an eternal perspective. And that's what Enos challenged us to do, was to focus on that eternal perspective, our own remission of sins and our standing before God, knowing that as we give our will to God, as we give our souls to God, and as we let down our will, our pridefulness, our desire to know these issues that are bothering us, as we put them on that altar and say, God, do with this issue as you will. And as we put ourselves on that altar, we prepare to return to the presence of God. And on this, I uh, want to share with you quickly one of my uh, favorite statements comes from uh, the, the incomparable Neil A. Maxwell, in which he said at the end of a talk titled Swallowed Up in the Will of the Father, an October 1995 conference address, he said, in conclusion, the submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give, brothers and sisters, are actually the things he has already given or loaned to us. However, when you and I finally submit ourselves by letting our individual wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we are really giving something to him. It is the only possession which is truly ours to give. Oh, I love that. love that because it is so true. Everything that you and I think that we are giving to the Lord, whether it be our tithing donations, whether it be the time that we're sacrificing, whatever it is, that whatever worldly thing that we think we're giving to the Lord, we're just giving it back to Him because it's His in the first place. And we have it on loan from him we are borrowing it and out of his own grace and mercy he's letting us use it uh, so that our time here is a bit more comfortable than it otherwise would be but as so giving those things back to the lord isn't much of a sacrifice but as we give our agency to him as we give our wills to him as we give our whole souls to him that is a sacrifice that is a gift that is worthy of expressing the love and the adoration and the gratitude that we should have for our heavenly parents and for our Savior. Uh, so love the, love the way Omni ends with his testimony, and I, I love that quote from Elder Maxwell, the importance of giving up our own pretenses, giving up our own uh, presuppositions, uh, giving up our own assumptions, giving up our own understandings, giving up our own stubbornness, our own bad habits, whatever it is we're giving up. And it's probably the same things that are causing us to wrestle before God in the first place. Whatever it is that we're willing to, whatever it is that we have that we're, is holding us back, let's put that on the altar before God, putting our whole souls before Him. All right, then we go from there to uh, words of Mormon. Because uh, starting with the next lesson, we will be in Messiah. And starting with Messiah, we're back into the big plates. We're no longer in the small plates. Messiah begins in our record 
uh, Mormon's abridgment of the large plates. And so it's important to remember what happened here uh, as we read in order to understand the words of Messiah. So we have these two plates. We have these small plates that went from Nephi up through Omni. And then we have these large plates that apparently started either with Nephi or Lehi. We don't know exactly, but it went all the way through Nephite history. And then Mormon takes these large plates and he abridges them, including Nephi's record. And then Joseph Smith, as he begins translating the Book of Mormon, he starts with the large plates. And originally, it seems that's all he was going to translate. And he gets through 100 plus pages of translating the large plates when Martin Harris comes to him and says, I really need to show somebody the record. Of course, after the third effort in asking the Lord, in which the Lord said no twice, finally the Lord says, okay, fine, do what you want. Let's see what happens. Gives him 116 pages and they're gone. And those 116 pages were the first portion of the large plates. And they went all the way up to just before the beginning of Messiah. And it's interesting to see now, uh, well, and then, you know, after we lost those, then uh, Joseph Smith continued translating from Messiah all the way up through Mormon. And then at the end, he went back and translated the small plates that we have. And he put those at the beginning because chronologically that's what made sense. And so we have start off with the small plates, which were not abridged by Mormon. Uh, those are actual Nephi and Jacob and Enos's records. We have those to start with. And then uh, Mormon threw in these words of Mormon uh, for us as kind of a bridge. He didn't know exactly why he was doing it other than that the Lord told him to. And so we have this bridge between the small plates uh, where the spiritual things were recorded, where it's not an abridgment, and the large plates. Now, one of the interesting things about this uh, whole process is that uh, you can see what appears to be a, a rather interesting um, mistake. And, and this was pointed out uh, in an article that I found in BYU Studies called When Pages Collide by Jack M. Lyon and Kent Armensen. And they put forward the proposition that is, seems very persuasive to me um, that uh, what happened was as they were translating this process, starting with uh, these plates, what happened was we have uh, <clears throat> this record that was cut off, essentially. It's not like page 116 was the end of a book or the end of a chapter. Page 116, and who knows why they chose page 116, was kind of in the middle of what they were doing. I don't know why they chose 116 pages, but that's what they did. And so when they lost 116 pages, so imagine if you just take any random book and rip out the first 116 pages. Well, starting on page 117, you're going to have a little bit of confusion. And that's exactly what we have when we look at the printer's manuscript. And you can see the printer's manuscript. Um, if you go to uh, josephsmithpapers.org, uh, you can go uh, and see at the beginning uh, of Messiah, see exactly what it is we are talking about. Because if you look in the words of Mormon, uh, starting in verse 12, there seems, between 11 and 12, there seems a very strange shift. And so according to uh, Brother Lyon and Minson, what happened was, as uh, they were preparing, as Oliver Cowdery was preparing the uh, printer's manuscript, he came to uh, what was originally chapter 3 of Mosiah, and he didn't quite know what to do with it because there were these few verses leading up to it that didn't quite seem to fit. He had the small plates, he had a word of words of Mormon, and then he had these few verses between words of Mormon and Mosiah chapter 3. Because assumably, Mosiah chapter 1 and portion of Messiah chapter 2 were part of the 116 pages that were lost. And so it's very fascinating. You can go to uh, the printer's manuscript, again on josephsmithpapers.org, and you can see where what was previously chapter 3, <laughs> he simply crossed out two of the Roman numerals and chapter 3 all of a sudden became chapter 1. 
And then he inserted, very small, it's, it's obvious that it's not where it's supposed to be, Book of Messiah. And so, uh, and, and that's why the Book of Messiah doesn't start with a heading explaining what the Book of Messiah is. All of the other books in the rest of the large plates, if you turn to Alma, it starts with this italicized explanation of the Book of Alma. If you turn to Helaman, it starts with an italicized explanation of the Book of Helaman, but Messiah doesn't have that. And that's because we're missing chapters 1 and most of chapter 2. And then the rest of chapter 2 starts in verse 12 of the Words of Mormon. And if you read it like that, it actually makes really good sense. So according to uh, the explanation by brothers uh, Lyon and Minson, uh, Words of Mormon uh, should be verses 1 through 11 of Words of Mormon. And then there should come a chapter 1 of Messiah and portion of chapter 2 of Messiah that we no longer have. They were lost uh, when Martin Harris took the 116 pages. And then starting in verse 12 of the Words of Mormon, we have the end of what was supposed to be chapter 2 of Messiah. And then uh, what was originally chapter 3 of Messiah is now chapter 1 of the book of Messiah, and we just keep going from there. So really, really interesting stuff. Probably you know, not that important in the end of things. Uh, but for me, I think it shows that this process uh, was error-ridden. There were mistakes that were made in this translating process. No doubt about that. And to me, that shows that this process is authentic. That shows to me that this was not something that was carefully calculated and then carried out in order to trick everyone. Because no one would ever put that in their plan to carefully trick everyone. That's just too... You, you would never think of doing that. To me, it's clearly, obviously, something that they didn't plan in this translation process, and then they just dealt the best, best with it that they could. And to me, that's evidence of the authenticity of this process. To me, that's evidence that this Book of Mormon was actually translated by the power of God. To me, that shows that this was not some scheme that Joseph Smith cooked up in order to trick everyone, but it shows that he was merely an instrument in the Lord's hands in translating this ancient text. And thank God that he did. Because I love the Book of Mormon. I love its messages. I love the prophets that we learn about. I love Enos and his wrestle before God before he received a remission of sins. And then to sum up, I... Today's lesson, I think probably the best verse that we can do so with is uh, Words of Mormon chapter 7, in which Mormon says, And I do this for a wise purpose, for thus it whispereth me, according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord which is in me. And now I do not know all things, but the Lord knoweth all things which are to come. Wherefore he worketh in me to do according to his will. And what a beautiful summary of the things that we've been talking about. We don't know all things. We have these issues that we wrestle with. We have these concerns in our lives that don't make sense to us. And we don't know all things. So what are our options? We can either put you know, the Lord to the side and say, look, this is, doesn't make sense to me. I'm out of here. Or we can humbly come before the Lord as Enos did, wrestling with him, saying, Lord, this doesn't make sense to me. Here's why it doesn't make sense to me. And then we put our guard down. And then we humble ourselves before the Lord and let him talk to us. And the answer very well might be, just as the answer that Mormon received, you're right, you don't know everything. So forget about it. Don't worry about it. I know what's going on. Trust in me. And as you do, you will receive a remission of your own sins. And at the end of the day, that is the thing that matters. Because I created this earth as a place for you to grow, a place for you to improve. And I knew that you were going to mistakes, make mistakes, and so I sent a Savior to save you, to help you receive a remission of your own sins. Because that is the answer to all of the questions that we struggle with. These questions, these challenges, these essay questions that we deal with, they're not multiple choice. They're difficult. They're challenging. And we're not going to know all the answers in this life. We are always going to have conflicts. 
We're going to have things that don't make sense to us. And that's not proof that it's not working. That's not proof that this is all made up. That's proof that it is working. That's proof that we have a God that loves us. And if we quietly and humbly come before them, before him, we will know that that is the answer. The answer is not, I'm going to magically solve all your problems. The answer is, I am going to show you that I love you. And I am going to show you that I have power to give you a remission of your sins and make it so you qualify to return to live with me. Because that is the purpose of this life. It is not to get all of our answers, or all of our questions answered. It is to enter into that relationship with God so that we are able to receive a remission of our sins, so that we can walk back into his presence and slowly, over time, become like him. I believe that as we become like him, our answers, our questions will be answered, but that's for faith to be resolved in the future. And in the meantime, our job is to humbly come before the Lord, seek his will, and then seek to carry out that will. And I hope that we will all do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.